0: This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. You're annoyed with me this morning. You're going to be seriously annoyed, I've got to say. Uh, back in um, 1999, a great film came out called The Matrix. I don't know whether you saw it. Yeah. And uh, there was a character in the movie called Neo, uh, played by um, Keanu Reeves. And he's a young IT guy. And um, he meets a chap called Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, and Morpheus offers him a little red tablet, and he says to him, do you want to know the truth? The truth about yourself and the truth about the world. And Neo decides to take the tablet, and he suddenly realizes the whole world is false, and he's actually a battery in a giant machine, and the whole of the human race is just, they're just batteries. Electricity is being taken off them. Machines have taken over the world. Well, this morning, I'm going to be Morpheus, and you're going to be Neo, and I'm going to give you the red pill of truth, <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder whether you're going to like what you're going to see. Okay, if you got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to chapter 2 of Timothy, sorry, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and I'm reading from verse 1 to verse 5. You may be quite sure that in the last days there are going to be some difficult times. People will be self-centered and grasping, boastful, arrogant and rude, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, irreligious, heartless and unappeasable. They will be slanderous, profligate, savages and enemies of everything that is good. They will be treacherous and reckless and demented by pride, preferring their own pleasures to God. They will keep up the outward appearance of religion, but will have rejected the inner power of it. Have nothing to do with people like that. This morning's word is called The Therapeutic Faith, and it's actually based on the most prophetic book I've ever read. Uh, back in 1966, a chap by the name of Philip Reef, an American, wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in that book, he actually said that the Christian church in America, and by extension, the Western world, would be replaced by a therapeutic faith that would be self-centered. It would be all about me. It would all be about how I can get things rather than doing things for other people. And right at the beginning, I want to say, do you know what, there's nothing wrong with therapy as such. I was up the mountain on uh, Monday camping, and I was listening to a Radio 4 program in my tent, and they were talking about how people with mental illnesses, particularly people with depression, antidepressants don't really work. They just mask the symptoms. Whereas talking through issues, counseling, can be effective in changing the way we think and can help us deal with issues like depression, particularly if issues keep on recurring in our life. What antidepressants tend to do, they just tend to have a, a chemical, pharmacological effect that is short-term. I agree with that entirely. I've always accepted the words of Maureen Lippman. It is good to talk. <laughs> it is. You need somebody to talk to about your problems. But we're not talking about that this morning we're talking about a transformation of the christian faith into something else into something profoundly ungodly in which basically we become self-obsessed and all we do is think of and look after our own self-interest and we've known for a long time that a life that is turned inward in constant introspection will become sick and unhealthy and unstable and do you know what we always talk about our loves don't we You know, people put on Facebook all the wonderful things that their children are doing because they love their kids. Nothing wrong with that. For the rest of us, that's really mind-numbingly boring, okay? Because we're not interested in other people's kids. I've supervised people who had too much of an unhealthy interest in other people's kids. It really is not good. But you know what? People who talk only about themselves, guess what? They're showing that they love themselves more than anything else. And the problem we've got is that self-obsession is now the basis of celebrity culture. Look at all the TV programs from American Idol, X Factor, Britain's Got Talent. No, it hasn't. We used to have it, but it's gone. (laughs) Big Brother, YouTube. What's YouTube about? It's about you. Facebook, what's that about? It's about you. It's become the norm throughout the whole of society. And the weird thing is, Philip Reith saw this coming. I think what he didn't really understand was that technology would change to such an extent that it would enable this self-obsession to become so dominant. So he said that there'd be three things that we would lose as the therapeutic faith took over the Christian faith. And the first thing we'd lose is knowledge. This is a quote from his book. Religious teenagers will not know what their religious traditions say they are to believe or will not understand them and simply not care to believe it. If there's one essential aspect of living a moral life in the therapeutic faith, it is the obligation to always persist in feeling good about oneself. Niceness is the highest ethical standard, popularity, the goal, and high self-esteem, the surest sign of sanctity. The God of the therapeutic faith is not demanding. He actually cannot be, because his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good about themselves. This watered-down, anodyne, anemic, inoffensive, tolerant, and insipid form of Christianity is utterly repulsive to God and an insult to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. He said that there would be three signs of this loss of knowledge. And these are fascinating. He's writing this in 1966. The first sign is this. Christians will stop burying their dead and start cremating them. Now that was a weird thing to say back then because the whole history of the church has been Christians bury their dead. You know, we all look to Abraham as the patriarch of our faith, as the Jews do, as the Muslims do. And guess what? The Muslims bury their dead, the Jews bury their dead. The Christians have always buried their dead until the last 20, 30 years. In fact, the first record we have of a church in written records anywhere in the world is in Algeria. In a place called Constantine, a group of Christians wrote to the emperor in Rome and asked permission to bury their dead. 275 A.D., and permission was granted, and, and that document remained in the Vatican Archive, and so it still exists. And when the Roman Empire became Christian, cremation was banned. It was a pagan practice. So it didn't matter whether you were a Christian or a pagan, you had to bury your dead. And that remained the case from the 4th century until the 13th of January, 1884, in Cafili, when a crazy Welshman by the name of Dr. William Price, who was a Druid, who used to dress up in a green elf outfit and go shopping in Lantrescent, <laughs> decided that his one-year-old son, who had just died, and who he had named Jesus Christ, should, instead of being buried, be cremated. And he went up on top of Kefili Mountain, and he cremated his child. And Dr. William Price was arrested and prosecuted, but when he himself died, he demanded that he be cremated. And on the 31st of January, 1893, 20,000 people gathered on top of Kefili Mountain to watch him being cremated. And that had such a profound effect that the government in 1902 allowed cremation for the first time in any country in the Christian world for 2,000 years. And since then, it's become the norm in America and in Britain. It's not in Europe. It's not in all other countries. It's it's completely gone out of the window. And the reason why Mr. Reef says this would happen is this. People would say this. It doesn't matter doesn't matter. God can raise ashes as well as He can raise a body. But it's odd that it did matter for 19 centuries, and it still matters to the rest of the world. But in Britain and America, it doesn't matter. It does matter. The reason we bury our dead, okay, it has nothing to do with the body, it has to do with the Bible. We are burying our dead to say this in fulfillment of Scriptures the graves will be opened and the dead will rise. It is a statement in the belief, in the faith of the resurrection. Go into a graveyard and look at the stones. What do you see? In Jesus I trust. Time and time again, there'll be a statement there from the Bible about the belief that this is not the end, but rather it is the beginning. The second sign of the loss of knowledge that comes with the therapeutic faith is cessation of teaching about hell. And I talked talked on hell about three or four months ago. And when I, I did that, I said, you know, I'm doing it because I've never heard it preached. I've heard it mentioned, but since I became a Christian in 1975, I've never heard it preached. And so I decided to preach it. And what Reef says is this. People will stop preaching on hell because the idea of ultimate accountability after death conflicts with the need to feel good about oneself by living life for ourselves rather than for others. We don't like the idea that maybe we might be held to account. And the third sign, and this is an interesting one. I will replace we and me will replace us in personal prayer. You look at the Lord's Prayer. I'm not even sure we teach our kids the Lord's Prayer anymore, but look at the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Nine times there's a plural personal pronoun rather than a singular pronoun. When you pray, who do you pray for? Most of our prayers these days, you know, it's just about getting stuff. It's about me, 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 me. But it's meant to be about us. What he didn't realize, of course, that basically prayer meetings would come to an end in churches. How many churches pray? How many churches have regular prayer meetings? How many Christians regularly go to prayer meetings? Think of the Muslims. They will take time off every day from their work, college, and school to pray five times a day. And we can't get Christians to pray once a month. Something somewhere has gone seriously wrong. Following on from the loss of knowledge comes the loss of love. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 says this, With an increase in disobedience, the love of many will grow cold. The therapeutic faith is a disobedient faith. And lo and behold, the love of many has grown cold. This is a quote from uh, Ross Duhart's book, uh, Bad Religion, which is his analysis of America. From our hallmark cards to the divorce courts, the American way of love has become therapeutic to the core. It emphasizes feelings over duties. It is impatient with institutional structures of any sort, and it's devoted to the premise that what feels right is right. That's exemplified for me by that terrible movie that Julia Roberts was in, Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, my goodness. She's an American. She's in a relationship with a guy for seven years. But she wants to find herself. So she leaves him and she travels across Europe. And she ends up having sex with Javier Barden on a beach in Bali. And all the women go, ooh, I'd love to do that. (laughs) But Javier Barden is married to Penelope Cruz. And as good as you look in your own eyes, guess what? You're no match for her. Not (laughs) Not only that, he used to play rugby for Spain. And as we know, all rugby players are moral men so he wouldn't cheat on his wife. And like football players, many of whom are in jail. But you know what? That movie exemplifies the self-obsession. Old-style movies were like, you know, boy meets girl. Boy's a uh, a journalist. Girl's a princess. Can they get together? That's Roman Holiday. Or maybe boy meets girl. They love each other, but their families hate each other. Guess what? That's Romeo and Juliet. That's gone out the window. It's just about me, 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 me. And you walk away from people. She walks out on Javier Barden in the end. Goodness me, what's wrong with her? (laughs) Seriously. Self-obsession leads to isolation. American universities do studies every year with their new intake of students. And Duke University has done a series of studies. In 1985, they asked their students, how many people can you talk to about personal things? And the average was three. By 2014, that had gone down to two. By 2010, it had gone down to one. And 80% of the people they mentioned were family members. The result of the therapeutic faith is narcissism. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself an important person? Do you consider yourself perhaps a very important person? Do you consider yourself perhaps to be an awesome person? If so, who gave you permission to steal God's glory? You do know what the word awesome means, don't you? Dread, fear in the face of God. We only have used to apply it to God. Remember the song, you know, Our God is an Awesome God? And now it's like we're all characters in a Lego movie everything is awesome, <laughs> everything is awesome in its own way. No, it's not. <laughs> when everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. The term important person, do you know what? That can only apply to the influence an individual has on other people. And the other people have to say whether that person is important or not. Um, there have been important people in my life who have profoundly influenced me. Maybe there have been important people in your life who have profoundly Influenced you. But those people didn't regard themselves as important, okay? They just saw themselves as ordinary individuals. This was brought home to me the other week when meeting up with some mates in Swansea and we were talking about influence. Who had the most influence on people? And I said, well, I'd supervised about two, two and a half thousand offenders, which I thought was pretty good. And somebody said, yeah, but my wife, she's a teacher. She's influenced tens of thousands of people. And I came home and I asked Jen, how many kids? taught in your career. And without blinking an eye, she said, oh, about 50,000. Now, I'm not a trusting person, so I got the calculator out. And lo and behold, if you have been a full-time teacher in secondary school um, for about a third of a century, you will have ended up teaching about 50,000 kids. And I thought, man, the most influential people I've ever met, person I've ever met, is my wife. I couldn't believe it. And yet, if you ask her, do you think you're an important person? Of course she says no. But it does explain why wherever we go, from Florida to Malta to Spain to Italy to camarthen people always come up to us and say, Hello! And they talk to Jen. Some of these people have grandchildren. The influence is extraordinary. If you're a teacher, you have extraordinary influence over so many people. The Bible teaches us that we shouldn't think of ourselves as being more important than we actually are. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 3. In the light of the grace I have received, I want to urge each one of you not to exaggerate your real importance, but instead to be realistic about what you are capable of in the light of the faith that God has given you. The therapeutic faith will say, you are awesome. You're a tiger. You're a lioness. No, we are all ordinary people. God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people. You know, the foundation stone of Western culture. Battle of Thermopylae, 480 BC. 300 Spartans go out to meet 1.9 million Persians. They last three days. I remember reading that when I was a kid. I cried. I thought, man, to know people like that. After the battle, after the, the Greeks had risen up and driven the Persians out, they raised up a monument to the Spartans. And the monument simply says, Go tell the Spartans, O stranger that passeth by, that here obedient to our laws we lie. Do you know what? You cannot help but feel pride and admiration for men like that. And that phrase, go tell the Spartans, do you know what that is? The bedrock of all Western military culture. But Gideon also led 300 men into battle. God had whittled down his army from 32,000 to 300. And the 300 were the ones who lapped water like a dog. Now, those people are special in a statemented sort of way, okay? And they were also victorious. But after the battle, no one ever said, Wow, 300 mighty warriors. They probably said, Did their social workers go with them? (laughs) After the battle, God was given the glory. Because God did something extraordinary. Through ordinary people. If you're an extraordinary, amazing, awesome, important person, God can do nothing with you because you'll get all the glory. In fact, God will oppose you. God will cut you down to size. The disciples were ordinary people. They moved the world. Jesus was an ordinary person. An ordinary person from Galilee who just happened to be the creator of the universe. I tell you what, we've got to get things right in this area. If you feel really important. You have self-importance. The other word for that is pride. This is what C.S. Lewis has to say about pride. Pride is the anti-God state of mind in which the individual is in complete opposition to God. All other sins are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Hey, you're in good company. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29 says this. Take yourselves, for instance, at the time you were saved, how many of you were clever in the world's eyes? How many of you were important people or came from important families? No, it was to shame the wise that God chose what is foolish by human standards, and to shame the strong by choosing those who are weak. Those people whom the world thinks are common and unimportant are the ones that God has chosen. Those who are nothing to show up those who have everything, so that people cannot feel proud before God. Michigan University also does its studies every year, and For years, they've been asking their students one simple question. Do I have a moral responsibility towards other people? In 1970, 80% of the students said yes. In 2010, 20% of the students said yes. And this is what they said in the conclusion to that report. We found the biggest drop in empathy after the introduction of MySpace and Facebook. We've turned in on ourselves. And as a result, we've lost the ability to change ourselves and change the world. To be a healthy human person, we need to love something outside of ourselves. What does Scripture say? Love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your strength, and all that is within you. That's your first love. But it doesn't preclude you from loving other things as well. I love that verse in Psalm 61, verse 2. Lead me to the rock. That is higher than I. You know, you have to have something out of yourself that absorbs your energy. If you love medicine, you'll become a nurse or a doctor. You love math, you'll become a math teacher or do math in some kind of business area. Love English, you might become an English teacher. You know, you have to have something that will take you up and lead you higher. Unfortunately, narcissists find it so easy to say no to other people, but impossible to say no to themselves. The term narcissist, the self-obsessed person, comes from narcissus. You know what? The Greeks are great in their myths at actually describing human weaknesses and human foibles. Narcissus is a man who is handsome beyond belief. And he's self-obsessed. And he spends all his time looking in a pool at his own reflection. And he loses all interest in life. But a girl falls in love with him. She's called Echo, and she follows him through the woods and the valleys of Greece, and he rebuffs her. He doesn't want to know her. Why? Because the narcissist cannot establish a healthy relationship with other people. Why? Because they love themselves more than they can love anybody else. And poor old Echo, her heart is broken, and in the end, she just vanishes. And now if you go into a wood or into a valley and you shout out some words, she echoes those words back. It's where we get the word from. Thing is, her her dad was a god. And the Greeks had this deity that they would send to bring humans down to size when they got too proud. That deity was was called Nemesis. And so Nemesis is sent to kill Narcissus. But guess what? When she finds him, he's already dead. He's killed himself. Why? Because he's growing old. And he just can't bear the thought that he's going to lose his beauty. And the weird thing is, either last year or the year before, there was a woman in England who had a, a serious illness that could easily have been cured. And she refused a cure because she was scared of growing old. And uh, the health authority took her to court. This is how we know about it. And the court decided she had the right to to refuse treatment. And she died. She was a narcissist, a self-obsessed person. She had kids. She had a life to lead. And yet, that obsession with herself in the end made her take her own life. 1800, Goethe, German poet, wrote this. I'm afraid that in the future, the whole world will turn into a huge hospital where everybody is everybody else's nurse. Ronald Dorkin, 2010, policy review essay, said this. Since 1950, the U.S. has witnessed a hundredfold increase in the numbers of professional caregivers. Our society boasts 77,000 clinical psychologists, 200,000 clinical social workers, 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, 30,000 life coaches, and hundreds of thousands of non-clinical social workers and substance abuse counselors. Most of these professionals spend their days not dealing with mental illness, but helping people cope with everyday life problems. We've all become patients. We've all become victims. And you might say, yeah, well, I've had a really hard day. Well, let me read you a diary entry from a chap who had a hard day. Last Monday was the 72nd anniversary of D-Day. Here's a diary entry from the 6th of June, 1944. 5 o'clock, clean guns, remove tarpaulins, clear up deck, ready for action. 5.30, made tea, remove securing ropes from tank. 6 o'clock, lost escort, steaming on our own at 12 knots, shipping water. 7 o'clock, 8 miles off beach, looks quiet. 7.45, US cruiser alongside, took on board Lieutenant Colonel Tank Corps. 8 o'clock, 3 miles off beach, being shelled. Flagships, shelling houses on beach. 805, standing on cockpit, feeling very elated, giving commentary to crew in well deck. Shell lands five yards away, not feeling so elated. 810, beached alongside LCI, machine gunned. Marine commandos landing, beach black with dead. Landing craft alongside hit with shell, tank ashore. Marine tanks going up beach, several hit. Navy still shelling, tracer by the million going ashore. 8.15, being shelled, going to rescue one of our landing craft, mined, shelled from beach, shells hitting, don't feel too good, 15 hits, 35 officers severely wounded, took over wheel, leaving one of our craft. 8.20, five craft destroyed out of eight, full speed ahead, steaming away from beach, LCM 1293, direct hit, still floating, reports of remanding craft. 8.30, go alongside cruiser, warfare officer to cruiser, says he thinks she's dying, move away, shell falls eight yards from cruiser, 8.45, steam alongside carrier, go on board, got a tin of tea, two pound of bully and cheese, bread, 10 o'clock, beach again, get cheered by navy, 11 o'clock, ditto, 1 o'clock, ditto, 2 o'clock, stunned, quiet on beach, 3 o'clock, Land troops can't get off. Change clothing. Have wet of tea. Take on sub lieutenant Smith RN from Porth Cole. Have a sing song. Quite happy. 3:15. Oblivion. Direct hit from bomb. Hit ramps. Bow doors blown off. Thank the Lord for saving my life. Check up on crew. Three dead. Remove. Four, cra- four o'clock. Abandon craft. Deaf in both ears. All kit lost. Get craft. 50 dead. Had cup of tea. Sleep. Badly shaken. That was my dad's diary. I found it after he died. He kept a three-day diary for the two days before D-Day and the one day that D-Day occurred. He was 23 years of age. Already a veteran. He'd been fighting for five years. He'd been involved in the first engagement of the Second World War, the Battle of the River Plate, December 1939, when he was 18. He was loading eight-inch shells into the Exeter's guns. The pocket battleship Graf Spee was firing back 11-inch shells. Seven of the shells hit the ship, knocked out all the guns, si- killed 61 people. remember the old man telling me that after the battle, when they were steaming back to Port Stanley, he went around with a drunken Irish sergeant, with a shovel, scooping up the bodies, putting them in potato sacks and throwing them over side. In and side. And leavening doesn't kill people, it liquefies them. If you ever watch the movie Battle of the River Plate, there's a scene where the captain shouts down one of those tubes. He shouts, Morgan, that's my old man. He was the only Morgan on the ship. 40 million people died in Europe. Between the Urals and the Pyrenees, 40 million people died in five years and 100 million people were injured. And after the war, they didn't go and see counselors and therapists. All they did was rebuild Europe. Why? Because whether they were living under communism or capitalism, they'd all been brought up in Christian culture. And they knew that God is to be found in the work and the labor of men and women. And they knew that work heals. And they rebuilt Europe. And look at us. I'm not just talking about young people, I'm talking about my generation. Look at us, my goodness. This is a quote again from Ross Duhart. A culture of care is a logical endpoint for a society in which the religious instinct is orientated towards the individual's personal needs rather than the needs of others, creating a sense of entitlement and extreme self-regard. It is little wonder then that people taught to be constantly enamored of their own godlike qualities, of difficulty forging relationships with ordinary human beings care culture promises contentment but delivers a sort of isolation that is at once comfortable and terrible leaving us alone at the center of the universe I think that last line is immense social media and there's nothing wrong with social media as such there's nothing wrong with anything it's the uses to which we put it social media creates an isolation that is both comfortable and terrible. You're warm in your own little world, surrounded by images of yourself, your narcissus, but it's terrible because you were never meant to live like that. We were meant to express ourselves and to live for other people. And the result of that self-obsession is that the levels of community participation have plummeted, whether it be sports or pubs or church or politics, social action, arts, trade unions, You name it, it's all gone off the cliff. And it's getting worse generation from generation. Take the difference between baby boomers and millennials. We've got to vote on the 23rd of June, haven't we, whether we decide to stay in Europe or leave. Most of the polls are saying that people are saying they want to stay. But it's the old codgers like myself who are saying we want to leave, and it's the young folk who are saying they want to stay. But the young folk don't vote they disengage themselves, by and large, from the political process. So who knows what's going to happen on the 23rd? Personally, myself, I think it is ridiculous for the British government to ask the British people anything. It never works out well. Look what happens when they asked us to name an Arctic research vessel. <laughs> <laughs> they thought we were going to call it the Attenborough because we loved that man when he played with monkeys. But actually, the British public came back and said it should be called Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> Now, I think Boaty McBoatface is too good a name to be wasted on a stupid Arctic vessel that's just going to be used to take pictures of polar bears. I think that our nuclear defense Trident missile force should be renamed the Boaty McBoatface fleet. (laughs) Now, in the event that we leave the European Union and the Europeans get a bit tough with us, do you know what? We can launch our Boaty McBoatface (laughs) fleet. They will be laughing their heads off until suddenly we turn the ground beneath them to glass. 20 years time, people were looking at Google Earth and they'd be saying, what's that large lake in the middle of Europe? And we'll say, that was Belgium. That's what happens when you disrespect Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> I went to university in 1979, right? They gave me five grand to study and tuition was free. You go to university now, you've got to pay about 26 grand uh, in tuition fees and you've got to borrow 26 grand to live. Five grand in 79 money is about 26 grand today. What happened? It's simple, 1998, the Labour government decided to introduce tuition fees. And we've got the actual data from the discussions they had. And the reason they decided to introduce it was, young people don't vote, so it don't matter. If Margaret Thatcher had done that to us, we'd have burned the universities down, seriously. The lack of participation means, guess what? People use and abuse you. So uh, who knows what's gonna happen on the Brexit vote. Third thing that you lose, and it's the consequence of the first two. You lose knowledge, you lose love, you then lose salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. For that day shall not come until there is a falling away first. We are in the falling away phase. Verse 5 of the scripture I read from 2 Timothy. People retain a form of godliness, but will refuse to let that false devotion change the way they live. The therapeutic faith, by denying the discipline of the Christian faith, will deny Christians access to heaven. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here today? You're probably asking that question yourself, actually. Why am I here today? I could be in leaks rather than listening to this. There may be many reasons why you're here today. But there's one ultimate reason. Our Lord commanded that we meet on the Lord's Day and that we worship Him and that we listen to His Word. Last Wednesday, our Lord commanded us to meet for prayer. Next Wednesday, He commands us to meet in home groups and Thursday in home groups. And if you're not a member of a church, of this church, fine, you do what you want. But if you're a member, hey, if you can't be there because you're hewing coal or you're sick or whatever, fine. But if you can be there and you're not there, what are you saying about your Lord? It's so easy to sing songs praising Jesus. But when he asks you to do something and you him to get lost, seriously, it's dangerous ground. That's the therapeutic faith. That's not the Christian faith. The therapeutic faith says just do what you want to do. Christian faith says this is what you should do. And it outlines how and why you should do it. I love coming to ABC. I really do. I enjoy it. I come every week, mostly. Didn't come last week, but by and large, I come most weeks. Love the home group. Love the prayer meetings. Previous church I went to, I hated going. I hated the prayer meetings. I hated the home groups. I hated the Sunday meeting. The worship was rubbish. The teaching was rubbish. The preaching was rubbish. And I went faithfully for 10 years. Why? Because my Lord commanded it. Okay? I have a Lord. I bowed my knee to Him in 1975. And there have been periods of disobedience but by and large, I'm trying my best. Do you have a Lord? This is what it says in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, and so every man did as he pleased. There is no king over the therapeutic faith. There is a king over the Christian faith, and it's Jesus Christ. However... Is there any point preaching this sort of stuff? Seriously. The words in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31 to 32 says this. God, speaking to Ezekiel, they come and sit down in front of you as if they were my people. They hear your words and then they do not do what you say because they seek only their own desires. They pursue personal gain and keep following their own self-interest. They listen to what you have to say, but they won't put it into practice. The peculiar thing about the therapeutic faith is that it filters out. So you only hear what you want to hear. And you only do what you want to do. You're like a kid when faced with a meal, ignores the food and eats the dessert. You choose the stuff that excites you. You choose the stuff that you like. But that way is not salvation. That way is damnation. And the terrible thing is the therapeutic faith has made the church worse than the world. This is a quote from Ross Duhart, about the American church, okay? I'm not quite sure how much it applies to Britain, but maybe it does. Overall, evangelical teenagers are more likely to have sex at an earlier age than their non-religious peers. Evangelical mothers are more likely to give birth outside of marriage. Evangelical marriages are more likely to end in divorce. Catholics have more abortions than the national average. Why? Because the therapeutic faith began in the church And therefore, it's had a bigger influence on the church than it's had on the world. But because the church has always influenced the world, guess what? We have influenced the world. We have made the world, and by the world I mean America and Britain, we have changed those two countries into nations that are self-obsessed. We're feeding people's desire for selfishness. And it's coming from the faith. And nothing, nothing best illustrates that than what has happened in America with the Republican nomination of Donald Trump as the man that they want to be the President of the United States, or as I call him, Orange, Mac- Orange Face. <laughs> Admittedly, he's had some trauma recently. His father was recently shot dead in a Cincinnati zoo. Very sad. Yeah, a boy fell into his compound, and well, you know, to save the child. Donald Trump, do you know what? He is the embodiment of the narcissistic faith. Here is a man who believes in nothing but himself. A few months ago, he was believing in partial birth abortion. Now, partial birth abortion, the baby's born alive and you kill it on the operating table. In the rest of the world, that's called murder. In America, it's called a partial birth abortion. And he said, that's okay. But to win over the Christian vote, he said, no, women who have abortion should be prosecuted. And the church went, yes, we love you, Donald Trump. He believes in nothing. Even the Pope said he's not a Christian. The Pope would know. I tell you what, if that man is elected to office, the world will be terrified. The only people currently supporting him among world leaders are North Korea and Russia. Okay, That should give you some indication of the risk that man poses. Because I'll tell you this, he is the first political leader in my lifetime who will press the button. I tell you this, if he ends up in a toe-to-toe confrontation with the Russians or Chinese, he will use nuclear weapons. He's the embodiment of what Dostoevsky said about the narcissist in one of his novels. He said the narcissist would rather see the whole world burn just so he can relieve an itch. This man is so dangerous, it's unbelievable. But guess what? He's been endorsed by the American evangelical and Pentecostal churches. Why? Because they love their own. They've swallowed the therapeutic face pill, and do you know what? He represents that over and over again. And I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. But you know what? It's the first person I've ever saw who I could genuinely say, I don't know that he isn't. And when the Antichrist comes, we can be pretty certain of this. The church will endorse him. The church will embrace him. The church will say to its members, if there is a global famine, hey, you need to have that mark. You need to have that band on your arms. Don't worry. This man... Is a servant of God. They did it with Hitler. They said that he was the German Messiah sent by God. I tell you what, things are heading towards the end of time and the end of days. The therapeutic faith says that you can serve Christ and yourself. The Bible says you have to choose between serving yourself or serving Christ. But in the last days, actually, the choice will be between Christ and Antichrist. Because Scripture is quite clear. God is sending a man who is going to represent in some kind of physical form the complete embodiment of self-obsessed selfishness. This is what Scripture says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. When the lawless one comes, Satan will set to work with all kinds of miracles, a deceptive show of signs and every type of evil to deceive those who are bound for destruction. Those who refuse to love the truth that would have saved them. The reason why God is sending them a powerful delusion so that they will believe what is not true is to condemn all those who refuse to believe in the truth and chose selfishness instead. Even the son of perdition, even the Antichrist, the second beast, the false prophet, is under the control of God. And if you swallowed the pill of the therapeutic faith, I'm sorry, you simply won't be able to stand up against him. And that's why you need the Christian faith to stand on this book and to be able to say what is right and what is wrong and do it fearlessly. Just to finish, mention mentioned The Matrix at the beginning. Interesting with the movie because there were some people, right, who took the red pill and saw the truth and were so appalled at reality they asked to go back into the machine and become batteries. And I think all genuine Christians who in the end choose to live by the therapeutic faith know that what they're doing is wrong. But it's just... It's a more pleasant life, being irresponsible. It's a more pleasant life, just loving yourself. It is a comfortable but terrible existence. Whereas being a Christian means having the discipline of discipleship and doing what you do not want to do. And as a result of that, you know, you become transformed into the likeness of Christ, which is good. But guess what? You live a life of service. Under the therapeutic faith, you just serve yourself. You and yours. But you know what? The therapeutic faith says, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're a selfish, useless waste of space. Yeah, but God loves you. And it's true. God does love you. God also loves the devil. He's not going to do the devil much good. He loves the fallen angels who will suffer eternal punishment. He loves all those people who take the mark who will also suffer eternal punishment. He loves all those people who reject Christ, who I believe will go to eternal destruction. So what? God loves all of his creation. The question isn't whether God loves you. The question is, do you love God? And the therapeutic faith will never ask you that question. Because if you say yes, then you have to answer the words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It is not those who say, Lord, Lord, will get into my Father's kingdom, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And that places a responsibility upon you. What does Scripture say? All things work to good for those whom God loves? No. All things work to good for those who love God. You see, the promises and the blessings and all of the wonderful things that God has for us only comes when we love him. And if we love him, we'll be obedient to his teaching. And remember this. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. You can call yourself a duck. It doesn't mean you can lay eggs. I just want to finish with this final scripture. Take your eyes off yourself. None of us are that important. None of us are that essential. Put your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's been my Lord since 1975, okay? And I tell you this now, he is well worth worshiping and serving. And we worship him and we serve him by serving each other and affecting the world and, and doing good things. And that's good for us. It makes you strong. It makes you healthy, okay? It deals with all those problems that we have. And And for me, this this is my favorite psalm. And it just, for me, it sums up the power of my God and his way in which he can affect lives and change people around. And I looked at six different versions of this psalm. And the one that best expressed the power and the poetry of the word of God, as it turned out, was the King James Version. And this is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble, Therefore we will not feel fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains tumble into the midst of the sea, though the seas roar and seethe, though the mountains shake where the oceans swell. There is a river, the streams of which make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. At break of dawn, God shall help her. The heathens raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathens. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. So we just love him. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.